to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Everybody say, in the last time. Wherein you rejoice greatly, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. Then he says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this morning in this title, The Rest of the Story. The Rest of the Story. So as you know, sanctification, I'm sure all of, all of you Bible scholars know that sanctification comes from the Greek, and the Greek word is hagiasmos, and it means to set apart for a special use or purpose to make holy or sacred. And whenever you first get the Holy Ghost, you are sanctified. But at the same time, there is a process that the Lord has of making us more like him. And that is what we call progressive sanctification. Now, none of us are there yet. Even the Apostle Paul said, I don't think myself to have arrived yet, but I'm still pressing towards the mark. The last book that he wrote, he was in prison writing that, and he said, I'm still pressing towards the mark for the high calling. But sanctification sometimes can be painful. And many of you are familiar with the story of Kevin and Medley Ziegler. They have a very interesting story, and, and I know that many of you have, have been tracking their progress. They are an apostolic young couple. She was a nurse, and he was halfway finished with medical school, well on his way to becoming a physician. And she would write later, she said, I have a five-year plan, and I had a ten-year plan, but God had other plans. They dreamed of the possibilities and the places that they would go and all the things that they would do and all the places that they would see. But on July the 9th, 2020, right in the middle of COVID, just three weeks into their marriage, three weeks, Kevin and Medley Ziegler's house suddenly exploded while they were both present inside. Kevin was hospitalized for nearly three weeks while Medley was admitted for nearly five months suffering second and third degree burns to 96% of her body. And really, probably, she shouldn't have even survived. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a massive, massive miracle. But it's cruel how life can change in a split second and how dreams can so quickly become shattered. Things that we planned for, plans that we've made, and preparations that we've made. And they've written extensively about the struggles that they faced all too quickly in their young marriage as she was fighting for her life. Here's a young apostolic spirit-filled baptized in Jesus' name couple with the world by the tail, intelligent, smart, and with an amazing future suddenly seized by a tragedy that was beyond our words to even begin to fathom or explain what it was. But this is how life goes sometimes. 
I know a friend of mine that I grew up with. I've known him for many years, probably oh, nearly 40 years. I can testify to his character. His name is Michael. We Bible quizzed together. We were friends together. We went to Gateway together for four years. And, and he married a, a young, beautiful, amazing, apostolic young lady. And they immediately began to be plugged into the local church where they were living there in St. Louis, Missouri. And they had only been married a few years when she got pregnant and, you know, the nine months proceeded. But as she gave birth to that baby, the doctors announced to both of them that this baby is not going to live. And Michael would later say, I held that baby in my arms as long as I could for, for about an hour. It was about an hour. And he said, I held that little girl in my arms and I saw her watch her. I, I saw I watched her take her last breath. And the questions flooded over and over in my mind. God, why does this have to happen? And honestly, I wish I knew all the answers to the difficult questions that life often presents us. Maybe a young couple that said, man, I thought I was in the will of God, but he left and he cheated on me and, 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 and he left me, you know, with these kids and, and now here I am and, and I thought I did everything right. And all I can tell you is sometimes life does not make sense, but we have to trust him anyway. Amen. I don't know the answer to all of life's difficult questions, but I do know this. If you are a child of God, you will undergo a process that the Bible calls sanctification. Now, it's true that everybody's story looks different. What, what, what God allows me to go through is not the same as what he allows you to go through because some of you are more like Jesus than me. <laughs> so maybe I need a few extra knocks on the head. I don't know if that's true or not, but he knows the way that we should take, and he knows the process. You know, I remember singing whenever we would go to youth convention many years ago in Missouri Youth Convention. I remember them singing, To be like Jesus. You know that old song? To be like Jesus. And we would lift our hands, tears would roll down our cheeks, and we would sing, On earth I long to be like him. And oh, we would sing that song and the presence and power of God would, would come over us. But what we did not understand was that to be like Jesus would be a lifetime journey. And there would be trials and there would be problems and there would be valleys and there would be mountains that we would speak to. That our mountains sometimes would not go away and sometimes we would have to walk around our mountain or, or climb our mountain or, or tunnel through it. But with the help and the grace of God, he was there and he was with us. And he helped us through it all. But it's a process. The process of sanctification is that we all have to endure pressures and trials in this life in order to make us more like him. It does not just magically happen. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said it like this. For now, we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall be known even as I am known. It's like, you know, have you ever walked up to a, a car that has tinted windows and you want to see what's inside and you press your nose and your face to the, to the, to the windshield 
and, and you try to see what's inside because the windows are tinted and, you, tinted and you can't quite see what's in there. We see through a glass darkly. We see through tinted windows. You can sort of see that there's something inside of there, but you know that there is something, but you don't know exactly what it is. This is what Paul was saying. He's like, right now in this life, we're seeing through a glass darkly. We're seeing through a tinted window. We don't exactly know what it's all going to look like and what it's going to be like whenever we get to, be, whenever we get to go to heaven, but we know that it's going to be awesome because we still see, but not clearly yet. But one day, we are going to see. One sweet day, we will know in full. And then we will know the rest of the story. This life is only a partial glimpse because there are things that happen to us, dreams that are left shattered by the wayside, and we at times do not ever get an answer why. Although we question and although we ask, and you might have your favorite prophet on, on speed dial, and you call them up, and, and they don't get a word from God that seems to be directly right at you, and you ask and you question God, why is this happening? And it seems like sometimes he is silent. Many get discouraged and their faith falters. They judge based on what the amount of the story that they know. But we only know part of the story. There's always more to be told. Sometimes the rest of the story, as I'm talking about here this morning, happens fairly quickly within a week or two or within a year. And then other times it happens much later in life. The weeks turn into months. The months turn into years. The years turn into decades. The decades turn into a lifetime. And sometimes we still don't understand. At times only eternity will allow us to see in full view. Let me kind of remind you about the story of Job as you know, he was a devout man and a God-fearing man. Job had a dream early on in his life in Job chapter 1. The Bible says he was a, a man that was devout and just, one that feared God. He eschewed evil. But Job had a dream, and I believe that his dreams was so that his kids would grow up and live for God and be successful businessmen and women just like him. It's telling that he offered sacrifices early in the morning, not just for himself, but for his kids. He said, lest they have sinned, I'm going to offer a sacrifice, not just for me, but I'm praying for my kids every day. That's essentially what he did. He was praying great prayers for his children every single day. He must have been a hard worker for all the wealth and possessions that he had. He wasn't a man that was lazy. Uh, he was a man that worked hard. But in a single moment, Scripture says all of his possessions and donkeys were stolen by bandits. All of the sheep and shepherds were destroyed by fire from heaven. And then that last servant came into him and announced that the Chaldeans had stole his entire stock of mules and murdered the workers that he had in charge of that. But then there was one more servant that came into Job that bore the worst news of all, the news that none of us would ever want to hear as parents. And that was the worst news of all, that a desert wind had came out of nowhere and knocked down the house here, uh, there. And all of his sons, seven sons and three daughters, were there having a party. And they too had been destroyed and killed as well. On top of all that, in just a couple of chapters later, he got struck with sores and boils from the top of his head, the Bible says, to the soles of his feet. His friends deserted him and blamed him. Job, it must have been something you've done wrong. Job, you've sinned. Job, you need to repent. His, 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 
His four friends came out of nowhere and sat and stared at him for several days and then finally began to expound their fleshly uh, wisdom based upon what little knowledge of the situation that they had, blaming him. And when all he had done was try to serve God with all his heart. And then perhaps the worst pain of all was when his wife said, Job, why don't you commit suicide and curse God? Now that's a bad day. You think you've had a bad day. Try to compare yours with Job. But God restored everything. You know the story of Job. If you don't, you can always read it. In, in, in the book of Job, right before the book of Psalms. But God restored everything Job had lost in his life. In fact, gave him double. But then there is this verse. Job 42 and verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. Now watch this, verse 13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, when you compare that verse to Job chapter 1 and verse 2, you know that Job had at the beginning seven sons and three daughters. And when you compare the amount of oxen and sheep and donkeys that he had uh, in the beginning of chapter 1, you know that God gave him double that amount in Job chapter 42 and verses 12 and 13. But it's almost like God passed over his kids. I'm going to give you double everything. I'm going to give you double the camels and double the oxen and double the gold. I'm going to build you a bigger house. I'm going to make you a better businessman. I'm going to expand your reach and expand your influence. But God only gave Job the exact number of kids he had at the beginning of his life and, or at the beginning of the story. And that was seven sons and three daughters. And I know for anybody, whether you're here physically or perhaps you're watching online, and if you ever know the deep pain that comes with the loss of a child, Nothing can ever replace that child that was lost. Nothing can ever replace that. And, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Job felt about this. But if you allow me to use my imagination here this afternoon, perhaps Job limped through life, missing his departed kids that had passed so tragically. Perhaps there were nights when he, whenever he woke up in the middle of the night and he said, God, you gave me everything else. But even if you had gave me double the kids, uh, they Still, it still would not have replaced what I lost. But one day, whenever Job passed away, and uh, and the memory of him had seemingly far uh, been lost and forgotten, Job went to heaven one day. And in the process of time, his seven sons and three daughters went to heaven with him as well. And I'd like to think that around the throne of God, as Job was worshiping there, that Job looked around and he saw exactly double the amount. Because sometimes, sometimes we don't know the full story in this life and we've got to trust God with the rest of it look at the poor man Lazarus he lived his entire life as a beggar this story is told in Luke chapter 16 we'll read it in just a moment begging for food by a rich man's gate the Bible says that that they picked him up every day and they carried him to this rich man's house we don't know the name of the rich man but we do know the name of the poor man his name was Lazarus he was a righteous man, a godly man, a, one, a man that prayed as evidenced from the fact that Jesus said that he went to heaven after he died. The Bible calls it Abraham's bosom. That's just symbolic language. He went to a place uh, of, 
of comfort. He went to a place where even the text says that thou art comforted and, 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 and the rich man was tormented. But what's always bothered me from the time that I read that at first, you know, I used to read that story in Luke 16 when I was a teenager and on into my early adulthood. I've even preached it before many times that that, that, that rich man, you know, he must have done some bad things to end up at that gate. But then I read the text a little more carefully and I realized, oh, he went to heaven. So he was a righteous man. He was a man who lived for God. Now, it's true. He wasn't successful, but that not by we, then not how we would, we would define success. Um, but but he had some kind of debilitating illness. There's evidence from the fact that scripture does say that they carried him to the gates of this rich man every single day. And he stood there with that, you know, probably with a cup in his hand. He would beg alms. And as that, as that rich man uh, would pull out of his gate, he would ask him for just a few crumbs of bread and perhaps a little bit of water or something to drink. Amen. And so I preached that text uh, many, many times. But then Later on in life, in just over the past couple of years, I read from Psalms 37 and verse 25 where David said, I have been young and now I'm old, and I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed ever begging for bread. You know, King David said, you know, I've been old and I'm young. I'm, I'm young and now I'm old. And I've looked back over my life and I've yet to see a single time when a righteous man of God ever was left at the gates of a rich man begging for food and bread. But apparently King David never met Lazarus, a poor beggar doing his best to survive. I'll get to that shortly here this morning. Uh, but there are things that God does sometimes that doesn't fit into our theology about God. You can't learn these things in a theology class at Urshan School of Theology. You can't learn these classes at the highest level of, of, of learning, but you've got to learn it through the trials and through the tribulations that God brings you through. That there are times in life that God just doesn't make sense, but we got to trust him anyway. Life seemed unfair and even cruel to that poor beggar until you know the rest of the story. Luke 16, and there was, verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Let me ask you this. Is that, is that poor man Lazarus, all the things that he endured, they laid him at that gate. They left him there and the dogs licked his sores probably because he was unable to move. He, he had sores from head to toe. Other people are getting healed. Other people are getting great miracles. Other people are... are are having breakthroughs in their life, but here I sit at this gate and I've been faithful to God just like they have. But that poor man did not know the rest of the story. All he knew was a partial embrace or, or a partial uh, spot of the story that God was writing. And let me tell you today that there is more to your story than you will ever know right now in this life. Because sanctification is the process of staying Staying in the fire. You know, you can jump out of the fire anytime you want. But if you do, you'll fail in the mission to be like him. And if you come back to the Lord, guess what? You get to redo the story over again. You get to redo the lesson. So you might as well stick it out. <laughs> and in Joshua 24 and verse 4. 
Bible says, and I gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You know that. Now watch what he says. And I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Read that again. Which was the righteous son of Isaac? The Bible doesn't even tell us Esau's death. You know, from the time that we read of Jacob and Esau's story, of how Jacob deceived Esau, you see him again later, 20 years later, whenever Jacob visited his father again. And, and you know, the story, you know, he saw the angel of God and, and Bethel happened, and then he went to Laban's house and he came back and, and he wrestled with an angel of God because he was getting ready to meet his brother the next day. And the last thing his brother said was, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. Now, if I would have been terrified too. Many times fear is the greatest uh, Presents us with the greatest need to have a good prayer meeting when you're terrified and you need God's help. You need to get a hold of God and you're desperate. And that's kind of where Jacob was. Bless me, Lord. And, and he wrestled with that angel. Amen. But, but Esau was not a righteous man. The Bible references him briefly in Hebrews chapter 12 where it, where it, where it talks about Esau had a bitter root that sprung up and many were defiled by him. He was a fornicator, an unclean person. Like the Bible says, don't be a fornicator, an unclean person like Esau, who's for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Esau was the unrighteous man, and he got Mount Seir, and Jacob went down into Egypt. Wait a second. Jacob was the one that was supposed to get double the blessing. He was the one who inherited the birthright. He was the one that good things were supposed to happen to And here we read, oh no, it was Esau who seemed to be blessed in this life. He got Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob, I sent him down into Egypt. As it is written in in Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You mean to tell me that God blessed a man that scripture says he hated his lifestyle and the lifestyle that he lived while a man that was righteous and godly and wholesome and did everything he could to do the will of God, he was sent down into Egypt. Not just sent down into Egypt, but for 430 years. Multiple generations after he died. But the Bible says in Romans, sorry, in Psalms chapter 11, And the answer to that is in this verse, Psalms 11 and verse 5. The Lord tries the righteous. The Lord tries who? The righteous. But the wicked and him that loves violence, his soul hates. Here's another way I interpret it. God tries the righteous, but he leaves the wicked alone. Grace follows the righteous, but the wicked, he leaves them alone. You see, God only only tries the righteous. He doesn't waste his time with the wicked. And that's why Jacob was sent down into Egypt for 430 years was because God had a great big plan for Jacob, but he needed to get the Jacob out of Jacob first. As Isaiah 48 says, Behold, I have, re- I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Oh, that's something to shout about, isn't it? You are chosen. Woo, thank you, Jesus. Da-da-da, get Sister Jackie on the keyboard. And then the rest of it in the furnace of affliction. 
Music stops. <laughs> wait, wait a second. I thought you were going to prophesy good things to me. What we don't deem good in our eyes is good in the sight of God. The process that God has to, to save our souls, to make sure that we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant is good in the eyes of God. We are called and chosen. You are chosen to be used by God, but also chosen to endure the furnace of affliction. It's this process that we call sanctification. Romans chapter 1 says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be what? Saints. Being a great teacher or a preacher or a worker of miracles or a pastor or evangelist or a prophet or any other calling, while that is all a high calling, the highest calling of all is to be a saint of God. That is your highest calling. Nothing even remotely compares to that. Because whenever I get to heaven, God is not going to say, Pastor Foster, come on in here. Whenever Pastor Gary gets to heaven, he's not going to say, Pastor Gary, we don't carry those ministries to heaven. We get a reward for the things that we've done. If it was done as unto the Lord, as the Apostle Paul wrote about many times, we, don't, we get a reward for it. But that is not our highest calling. That calling ceases when we're in heaven. You know, and we know that from 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said only three things remain, faith, love, and hope. The greatest of these is love. The love of God that you walk in. The character that God develops in you in this life. That is what we will take with us to heaven. So that is why God says, God considers that the highest calling of all. The calling to be saints. Thus we are called to be sanctified. Some things come immediately as salvation while others is a process. That's where the furnace comes in. And some of you today are feeling Perhaps the fires of the furnace as your faith in God is tried. God cannot use a man or a woman until they are good and broken. God cannot use a man or a woman until they have been broken. In Psalms chapter 17 and verse 3, he says, You have proved my heart, you have visited me in the night, you have tried me. And shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. God tried David long before he was ever king. He was already in the furnace. Long before he was king. Long before Samuel the prophet laid hands on him and poured that oil down on top of his head. Long before then he was a shepherd boy with a slingshot. Amen. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he was writing Psalms still even as, as a young child, but he had faith and he had trust in God. We know that because he had no sooner had he been, had he been anointed when in 1 Samuel 17 he walked in. And, 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 and you know the story of how Goliath was, you know, he was the Philistine and he was facing the Israelites in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 17. But, but King David went before King Saul and he said, I'll fight him. And the Bible says he was a young, ruddy-looking dude. That means he was a good-looking youth. He, hadn't, he wasn't shaving yet. He had, his, he had his boy looks still. His voice wasn't even cracking. He could have sang soprano in the choir. <laughs> he was a good-looking, ruddy-looking youth. And King Saul looked at him and laughed. Who do you think you are? But David said, man, I, you don't know. It's not who I am. It's who he is. <laughs> you see, I know a God. 
there was a bear that came out of the woods. And there was a lion that came out of the woods. And I smote the lion and I smote the bear with faith, my, with faith in God. And this day, I'm going to smite that Philistine. That faith had been being built in David long before Samuel poured that vial of oil on top of his head. And then there was the years of hiding from King Saul. Lord, I've been anointed king, but for years and years, uh, King Saul was chasing after him. And the anointing of God was upon him, but he was hiding in caves. But he was learning how to trust in God. Like gold is put through the fire and whatever impurities will come out, God puts us through trials. And whatever he finds, what he finds is how we react and respond. At the start, we find Job living the dream. But some things came out in Job that only the fire could ever reveal. Whenever Job cursed the day, he was born and he got depressed and he even questioned God. At one point, he actually said, I wish God would write my story with a pen of iron. I was like, funny you should say that, Job. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing. Job just didn't know it. And now here we are, many thousands years later, still telling the same old story of Job that's been preached countless times. And it's still blessing us today. Job had no idea how big a story God was writing for him. Whatever happens to you, even the things caused by others... People, hurts, pains, abuse. If you stay with Jesus and keep a good spirit, eventually God will turn it around for your profit. Amen. Romans chapter 11 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? We have to stop counseling God on what to do with our life. We have to stop counseling God and telling him all the top 10 things that we need to do and what, he's, what he needs to do and how much time he's got to do it. It's not how it works. Last time I checked, we're not God. And it doesn't work anyway. So you might as well stop. Amen. Paul said, who has been his counselor? I mean, the, whenever you think that the God that is in charge of our life is so smart that he designed and built the entire universe. All the billions and billions and billions of stars and all the billions of untold galaxies. By the way, the, the universe, universes and time, is, is, it, it's still being created. Stars are still being formed because God said, let there be, and he never said, let there not be. That's the power of the word of God. It's still happening today. Stars are being formed. Things are happening in outer space. It's growing. It's multiplying because God said, let it be, and it never stopped. That's the one in charge of your life. If you trust him, let God be God. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said in him, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? You think John the Baptist was disappointed in Jesus. As he lay there in prison, he was the man that was baptizing people left and right. The power of his word was the power of the word of God. Prophecy was all over him. But when Jesus came on the scene, he said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie your sandals. And he baptized the Lord. Uh, a dove came from heaven, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I will please. And John said, he must increase and I have to decrease. I've got to quietly escape. Now, John may have thought God's got a retirement plan for me. 
I'm going to retire into the wilderness. Eat me some more locusts and wild honey. Yum, yum. But God had other plans for John. Oh, you're going to retire, all right, but in prison. And they're going to cut your head off for my will, for preaching my word. And John finally sent those last two disciples to Jesus. Are you really he that should come, or should we look for somebody else? Let me tell you this. It's okay to be disappointed in God at sometimes. But when you do feel that way, when you do feel like God has not done what you thought he should have done, you must always remember this. He's not done yet. It's easy to judge uh, if, if we had a Picasso and somebody was painting, a great painting, a Picasso, halfway through it, it's easy to say, what in the world is that? He's not done yet. We feel disappointed when we judge our journey too quickly. Whenever we judge things before their time. And let me tell you, it's not done till the author of your story puts the pen down. And as long as I've got breath in my body, he's still writing something. He's still writing it for my good. It may be the process of sanctification. There are, there's good things. There's bad things that happen to all of us. But through it all, we got to trust in the one who gave us his spirit and loved us more than life itself. In Genesis chapter 28, in verse 19, and he called the name of that place Bethel. This is Jacob. But the name of the city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go. Watch what he says. If. Everybody say if. If God will do this. And will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. You realize that when Jacob faced Bethel, he didn't commit his life to God there. He said, If God brings me back to this place in peace, then he will be my God. Now watch, verse 21, so that I, uh, sorry, verse 22. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you will give me, I will surely give you a tenth unto thee. Jacob made a vow that if God brings him again to his home, remember he's running from his brother. He thinks his brother is going to kill him. So Jacob leverages, you know, tries to make a deal with God, essentially. Because that's what he does. Jacob makes deals. Jacob swindles, he cheats, he lies. Okay, as evident, that's how he got his brother's birthright to begin with. And so this is kind of probably what Jacob is trying to do with God. He's just had this amazing experience with God. Bethel, this is the house of God. I saw angels of God ascending and descending upon a ladder. God is here. God's got his hand in my life. And Jacob's old character kicked in. He says, okay, hmm, you know what, God? If you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Jacob made a vow. And over 20 years later, 20 years later, in Genesis 33 and verse 20, after Jacob met with Esau and had returned home in peace, just like he, uh, just like he had vowed to the Lord, Jacob names that place that he visits a second time, El Eloha Israel, and it means God, the God of Israel. It was here at this place. 
El Aloha Israel, that Jacob was honoring his initial pledge that he made to God 20 years earlier to let God be his God. If he brought him to his home in peace, he was saying, he's my God. This is where Jacob fulfilled his vow from Genesis 28 and verse 20 when he made that vow the first time. Now, you would think Jacob's life has already been hard. Of course, he had kind of a hard head to begin with. So it's no wonder if you got a hard head, you're going to have a hard life. I don't know. Somebody said life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. I'm not calling anybody stupid, but you're not so wise if you don't follow God's plan for your life. Even people that are living for God, they make all these decisions, major decisions in life without ever really pursuing and seeking God about them. Those are shortcuts to nowhere. (laughs) And they end in pain nearly every single bit of the time. But Jacob's life immediately had been hard. So right after Genesis 28, where he first came to Bethel the first time, After that, he was on his way to Laban's house. As I said, he spent 14 years being deceived by his uncle Laban and working for what would be his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And the Bible says one of them was not so pretty. Had his wages changed for the worse 14 times over 20 years. Many, many sleepless nights in the field, in the cold, and in the heat. He worked very hard during this time. And he would have been sent home empty. With nothing at all to show for it, not even his wives, had it not been for God's intervention on his behalf. And I would dare say that if God had not intervened, and remember when Laban was chasing hotly after Jacob, and God appeared to Laban in a dream and said, don't touch him. Don't take his wives, don't take his count. I've, I've blessed him, don't touch him. Speak neither good nor bad, don't touch him. Had God not appeared to Laban, Laban would have came home with his wives, Jacob's possessions, and everything, and we would never have known Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God would have, he would have been home empty. So you would think that this newfound repentance that Jacob had with his life, when he said, this is Elo Elha Israel, he's my God now. I'm going to walk in his ways. I'm going to pay my tithes, he even said. You would think that his life would take a turn for the better, but on the contrary, it did not. In the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 34, Shechem sleeps with Jacob's daughter Dinah and his two sons. Simeon and Levi slay all the men in response to that, and Jacob is forced to leave that place in complete and utter shame. In the very next chapter, Genesis 35, not very long after Jacob had said that, Deborah, who who, who was Jacob's mother's nurse, passed away. Deborah must have been like a second mother to Jacob because Jacob named that place Oak of Weeping. In the same chapter, his beautiful and beloved wife, Rachel, whom he had worked 14 years to get, passed away while giving birth to his younger son, Benjamin. Ben am I, as Rachel called him, the son of, of my sorrow. In verse 29 of that same chapter, his father Isaac also passed away. God took the three people in his life who were the closest to him in a single chapter right after he had committed his life to God. But it goes on. In Genesis 37, he loses his favorite and most most loved son Joseph, thinking that he had been slain by wild beasts. And several years go by, and Scripture says that Jacob's spirit had died. He had simply given up hope. And then came a great famine. 
and two years into that famine. And he thought, you know, this is where maybe perhaps he thought this is where it ends for me. But he had to trust God again by sending his favorite son, Benjamin, into Egypt so that he and his family would not starve to death. I think it's safe to assume that Jacob was probably disappointed in God. But the Bible says that whenever he got word that Joseph was alive, Scripture says Jacob's spirit revived. Because from the time that Jacob proclaimed God as his God, nothing but trouble had came his way. Nothing but trouble. And it all culminates in that single moment in his life where Jacob's finally, his spirit finally revived when he finally says, man, something good is going my way. Jacob's story was not over yet. You see, it's not over, as I said, until the author puts down the pen. And then there's this curious story from Genesis chapter 49. About 17 years had passed since Jacob and Joseph had been reunited. And Joseph, who had been through his own trauma and trouble, as we all know that story, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim was not the oldest. It was Manasseh. Manasseh was the oldest. Ephraim was the youngest. Now, remember, remember what had happened to Jacob many years earlier, right? You remember that story. He had deceived his brother, and the younger got the blessing. And whenever Joseph sees that his father is on his deathbed, Scripture says that, that Jacob sat up about like this. And he had a staff in his hand. He leaned on that staff. And he put the youngest on his right knee and the oldest on his left knee. And Joseph said, not so, Father, because Ephraim is the or sorry, Manasseh is the oldest. And then Jacob said, by the Spirit of God, this is where he first began to prophesy. You realize Jacob was not a prophet until the end of his life. He is a prophet, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't flow into that until the very end of his life. And he switched their roles. And so the lesser who was the younger got the greater blessing. And now we see Ephraim and Manasseh instead of Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob had to learn that God's ways are not our ways. Out of Jacob's long life, the writer of Hebrews selected one moment in Jacob's life as Jacob's ultimate act of faith. And it wasn't when he said, if God brings me back here, then God's going to be my God. It wasn't any of those things. You know when it was? It was this exact moment from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. You see, Jacob was a hard man early in his life, strong in his fleshly will. But this time, the youngest got the primary blessing again. But with Jacob acting in light of God's perfect will and without all the scheming and all the anger and all the bitter results this time he just flowed into the prophetic and immediately the spirit of prophecy came over him and as Jacob laid there all of his 12 sons came before him and he prophesied about each and every one of them he even spoke over Judah and prophesied that Messiah would come from the loins of Judah he told everything he told about Simeon and Levi and how Levi would inherit the priesthood he told about all the 12 prophets and all the things that were going to happen he saw 10 years 
years into the future. He saw 500 years into the future. He saw thousands of years into the future in that single moment. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this was his greatest moment of all. You see, God is still writing our story and he's not done yet. He's taken us somewhere. He's taken you somewhere. And when he gets done, you're going to flow in an anointing like you've never had before. So you got to keep trusting God and you got to stay in the furnace and you got to keep trusting in the Lord. Amen. There's the rest of the story. Musicians would come tonight. And I mentioned how, how that poor man was a man that was living for God his whole life. Going back to the story of Lazarus just for a moment. And, and, and this morning in prayer, the Lord spoke to me and he said, you need to read that story again. And I did. I read it again. And I'm talking about the story of Lazarus. And what has always troubled me was Lazarus, it feels like Lazarus kind of really got a crummy deal. But David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And God said, read that verse in Psalms again. I have never seen the righteous what? Forsaken. We need to get this deep in our spirits today. That there are times in my life, I can look back, if my life can be like a timeline, I can look back over my life and I can see there's pain and there's heartache and there's, there's been sometimes, as I know all of you have to, an ocean of tears, but intermingled with all of the problems and all of the valleys and all of the trials is the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And the Lord brought me to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul said, we are troubled on every side, but we are not distressed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Amen. Paul said, man, there are times when I was perplexed. When I was without answers, there were times, even the Apostle Paul, you can read in the book of Acts, he said in many times, he's like, man, I was without bread. I was without water, so I just fasted during that time. I trusted God. I was thrown in prison. I wrote entire epistles. You know, the, the greatest treasures that Paul gave to us was written while he was in prison in Rome. But the great Apostle Paul said, I look back at my life and I was perplexed. That means to be without resources, to be in straits, to be left wanting, to be embarrassed, to be in doubt, to not know which way to turn, to be at a loss with oneself, to be in doubt, to not, to, to, to not know how to decide or what to do, to be perplexed. That's what the word means according to Strong's Greek words. Paul said, I was perplexed. But he said, one thing I can look back over my life and I can say I was never forsaken by God. There were times when I didn't have the answers, when I didn't understand why everything was happening the way it was happening. There were times when I thought it should have been a right turn and God said, go left. Times when I thought it should have been up and God said, go down. But I was never forsaken. And I'm here to tell you today, just one word as we stand. You have never, ever been alone. He has walked with you every single step of the way. And at times when you did not even perceive his presence, he was there walking beside you.
That's why I said I can look back over my life and it seems like an ocean of tears. But he's been with me and he's never forsaken me. And God's goodness is intertraced all throughout our story. Lift your hands today to the one who's still writing your story. You might feel a little disappointed, perhaps in the Lord at this season of your life. But remember, God's not done yet. He's not done yet. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forsaken this church. He's still working out all things for our good. There's things maybe we don't understand, but there's a great big God who's working it all out for our good. And all we've got to do is show up and say, Lord, what do you want us to do now? Come on, let your voices out for just a moment right now. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Amen. We're going to open up these altars. I want you just to come down and just find a place to talk to God. Maybe God will lead you to pray for somebody. If you're not going through anything, if things are going well, go pray for somebody. Because there's a lot of people watching here physically and that are watching it online who are probably going through a lot. But God's still writing your story. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.